Outside, should I run and hide? How do I take my company worldwide? Do you love the law? Did you watch Hee Haw? What's the weirdest thing that you ever saw? What's it like in court? Favorite sport? Can you help with my book report? Is my hair too long? Am I right or wrong? And do you mind if I sing along to anything? Ask Alan anything in the world. All right, hello everybody and welcome to this episode of Ask Alan the Podcast. I'm Alan Crone, the CEO of the Crone Law Firm, and we've got a very interesting show today. I'm very excited about it. We've got Greg Siskin and Mark Diaz, who are uh, the principals of a real estate title company and closing firm called Close Track that's doing uh, real well. And uh, gentlemen, thank you for uh, for jumping on the call. Yeah, thanks for uh, having us, Alan. We could jump right in with with the name Close Track. So. Uh... I've always kind of been a fan of technology, maybe not a great user, but I've always been amazed at what it can do. So I had originally got in the closing business back in 1993, and I, I got out in the late 90s um, when everybody was talking about the, the information superhighway. Mm-hmm. And uh, as that was coming along, I thought it was going to be big. So I, I thought I needed to kind of further my education, learn about the internet a little more. So I got out of the closing business and went back to school for a couple of years and got a degree in uh, e-commerce and decided I would try to take the transaction online and create this transaction management portal. And that's where the name Close Track came from. It was a very rudimentary website at the time, but um, sounded good on paper. Nobody really, um, I was solving a, a need or a problem that really didn't exist. People weren't ready to migrate online yet. So I eventually pivoted from, I kept the name and pivoted back into the traditional closing space of, you know, printing documents and, and signing with ink. Greg, how about you? How did you get to uh, uh, close track in this, this type of uh, transaction work? Yeah, so I started out at a traditional law firm when I finished law school in 1999. And um, our mutual friend, uh, Bill Walk, was a partner there. And um, that's how I met Mark. Um, you know, it was a, we were back in our younger days. Um, we had a lot of fun playing golf together. And I had decided that that environment just wasn't uh, a good fit for me. Um, and we were doing a lot of litigation, but I had a little bit of exposure to the transactional side. And as I got to know Mark and, and heard more about what he was doing, um, it, it was just seemed like an exciting opportunity. When I, when I left, I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do next. And Mark and I have laughed about this over the years from time to time. I just started kind of hanging out at the office and, uh, you know, he had a place to work and, um, um, I started doing some closings and, and, and learning the ropes. And, uh, that's been nearly, uh, 20 years now, uh, that we've been, uh, together. Well, uh, Mark, I want to pick up on something you said that I think is uh, is fascinating. Uh, you know, you you were an early adopter of some of this technology, but expand a little bit on on how resistance in the the industry or uh, cu- you know your customers uh, impacted the the application of technology to to uh, closing real estate. Well, initially, I think some people who were going to be impacted by the closing, migrating it online, were fearful that it could eliminate their position or 
you know, the value they might bring to the transaction. And we've recently seen, so, so that never really happened, partly because the technology wasn't ready, partly because people weren't ready to move on. So as we know with recently with COVID, people kind of got forced in to a lot of online situations. So we dealt that and, and that accelerated both the development of the technology as well as some of the laws that were needed to implement it or to make it legal. And one of those was online notaries. And what I've kind of come to find out, or Greg can chime in on this, people, even though that online avenue is available for the closing, I don't think it provides nearly the experience that an in-person closing does. And once those rules were relaxed and people would come back into the office again, um, and we still had that online option, nobody really wanted that online option hardly. It was rare that we, we needed somebody absent some exigent circumstances, they were out of the town or out of the country or whatever. So there are certain aspects of the transaction that we can compress and migrate online. And at the inception of the process, it's very helpful, like getting signatures to a contract. You want to hurry up and bind the agreement. You can email it out. They electro electronically sign it. But when it comes down to the closing, that kind of capstone event for the transaction, people seem like they want to come in and we want them to come in and kind of summarize and explain everything at that point. When you when you do closings online, or I'm I'm assuming you're doing them via Zoom. Well, we've done them a variety of ways. Um, we had some emergency rules passed during COVID where we could do a Zoom closing. So people would we would FedEx or deliver the documents to them. We'd have a Zoom call. They would sign them where in wet ink where they were. We'd notarize them when they got back. Uh, now we've got different platforms available where we can do a remote online notary where they, they don't have to sign, but they can just click. So we use um, uh, a little bit of both now. Greg, where do you think technology um, in your industry is, is gonna take the industry? It's a great question. Um, I wish I knew the answer. The adoption has been slow, uh, slower than I think anybody would have predicted, um, you know, say, say 10, 20 years ago. I think that at that time we were all un under the uh, would have would have said, um, you know, we won't be sitting at a table. There won't be, you know, wedding closings anymore. And yet, um, here, here we are. And still, the vast majority of transactions are closed. You know, where somebody is signing in front of, in the traditional way. Um, and um, you know, as we move forward, as you know, our our, our children grow up and and we become older, um, I. I I would like to tell you, I think that that it'll become massively adopted, but I'm really not sure, Alan. I think, uh, you know, as I was, as we were talking offline, I mentioned uh, there was an individual, we had a transaction that closed this week where, you know, unbeknownst to anybody, he just was out of the country and said, well, I didn't, I didn't realize, I, I thought I could do it all online. Um, and, and, and we, we were able to get it done through, through a, through a Ron transaction. Uh, but they're cumbersome, and um, and I think they make people feel um, some uh, a little bit uncomfortable. Um, this this gentleman was probably in his sixties, and so generationally, you would think this is a person who wants to come into the office, wants to see it, touch it, feel it, sign it, um, but he didn't. And um, so I, I, you know, in some ways, I think well, it's a generational thing. Younger people are more accustomed to the technology. They want it. They don't. They expect to use their phone uh, to sign everything, uh, but that's not always the case. And 
as I've said for years, from for from for almost every for everybody, um, you know, a home is the single largest purchase that you'll ever make uh, in your lifetime. And um, you know, coming in and sitting around a table um, and signing documents and having somebody like myself or Mark explain things, um, you know, that may never go away. Do you think there's a correlation between um, the sophistication level? In other words, if I'm a couple and I'm buying my first house in my 20s, I'm more inclined to want to sit with the lawyer and understand everything as opposed to it's my third house and I'm in my 40s or 50s. I just want to get the deal done. I'm, I'm not as worried about knowing what I'm signing because I've been through the process. Uh, is there a correlation there, you think? I think there is, but there's always the exception. Uh, the gentleman yeah. I mentioned, um, and the, on the other extreme, you know, I, I, now I'm recalling last week, I also had a couple this, this, uh, this, this, the, the, the wife, this, this had been her home since she was four years old. And she was, I would say, well into her seventies. Oh. And, um, she, uh, um, there was no using even email. I mean, call, I mean, for, you know, we were taking things to them and so they could see them in advance and dropping them off at their house. And, uh, so there was there was no technology deployed in the transaction, you know, very, very, very little. Um, so it really does run the gamut. But yeah, generationally, I think younger people are more inclined to want to sign electronically and do everything over their phones. And older folks, myself included, would be more inclined to come in and, and sign at a table. Yeah, it um, like you say, there's there's something about uh, knowing that there's a paper file somewhere. Uh, that I think gives some some comfort to some people, uh, but it's you know it's interesting because uh, in on my side of the law I do a lot of litigation. I really thought that the Zoom hearing uh, would be more would be prevalent uh, and preferable, but those are starting to kind of go away. You know, uh, I think there's something about coming together in in a courtroom or a closing room. I don't want to say it's more formal, but it just seems more real if you're if you're there in person. Well, I, I think this is a harbinger of a lingering effect of the financial crisis is that there's still in 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 many people's view a distrust. What am I doing here? What am I signing? And um, I can say um, when I first started doing this, um, it was not uncommon at all for somebody to sit down at the table and go, that's not the monthly payment that's not the interest rate. And since, uh, since we had some new laws take effect, I would say somewhere 2012, 2014, we call them the TRID rules. But the entire process now is engineered uh, for disclosure. You're gonna get the settlement statement, we call it the closing disclosure, three days in advance of the closing. You're gonna get to see it. You're gonna know what your interest rate and monthly payment are. The, the same thing with at the time you apply for the loan, there's rules in place that say disclosures have to be made so you know what fees you're paying. Um, so really the, the entire process was re-engineered and um, almost every loan that's originated today in the residential um, origination space is the bank, the originator wants to be eligible for sale to, to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, our, our government sponsored entities. So everybody is signing the same, you know, form of promissory note, form of deed of trust. Um, it's all uniform. Um, so they're not, you know, slipping one in on you. 
uh, and that you're only going to come to find you know, the surprise when you know when you make your first monthly payment or somewhere down the road. So um, to that to, to that extent, because I think that it's really more engineered for disclosure, I think it it does lend itself more um, to a remote online notary and an electronic signing. But still, you know, people are leery, and it'll take time for that leeriness to to go away. Mark, what uh, what advice would you give uh, you know homeowners that are engaging in um, a transaction like this, uh, whether they're first-time home buyers or ho first-time home sellers, or they've done it a, a bunch in this new environment, what tips would you give them on how best to interact with a company like yours? Well, one thing, you know, we, we've started to do here lately is to, it, it's, it seems like everything's kind of coming full circle, whether it's, uh, you know, everybody going to vinyl for their records we're trying to get back to more face-to-face, in-person, talking on the phone instead of, you know, just emailing, texting, those kinds of things. Because one of the uh, kind of the dark side of uh, digitizing the transaction or moving things online is it's opened up the transaction to a lot of fraud all over the world. You know, we're constantly under attack, uh, email, uh, real estate agents, our, uh, their email accounts are constantly under attack by hackers trying to figure out when a transaction is happening. And what the hackers will try to do is we'll, we'll try to figure out when a transaction is and insert some bogus wiring instructions into the transaction. So cyber fraud is a huge issue right now. Um, we, we like to get an in-person introduction or not an in-person introduction, but a kind of a personal connection to the client early on in the process. So that if they get an email asking for money, they need to call us and verify it. So it's kind of buyer beware, seller beware right now in the transaction, especially for first time home buyers. You know, they don't know, you know, kind of the sequence of events sometimes. They wouldn't know that it might be odd, you know, two weeks before closing to get an email asking them to wire all their money immediately. And, um, you know, these, these fraudsters are pretty savvy about that because there's so much money at stake. I think they're really deploying a lot of resources. And even with the, the RON, the remote online notary, I've already heard of um, fraudulent transactions there already, uh, which is even more uh, just bold because in a RON transaction, you've got two-way audio uh, visual. So you're on a, you know, just like we're doing now, you're almost like on a Zoom call with the fraudster and they're signing and they've got bogus credentials. In this case, I heard they had a bogus passport that was verified through some kind of agency, uh, third-party agency, and uh, they were able to, you know, get away with that fraud. Wow. Greg, uh, how about you? What uh, advice would you give folks that would be interacting with you, with uh, your company? I could probably go on for, for longer than the podcast lasts on this question, Alan. Um, <clears throat> banks have something called Know Your Customer, KYC. Um, no, I didn't say that right. No, the Know Your Customer rules. But the um, know who you're dealing with um, when you're dealing with somebody um, at, a, at a real estate closing firm. Um, you, you use firms in Tennessee. Um, you don't have to be a lawyer to do a real estate closing. So, I mean, there's, there's no, as long as you can um, write a title insurance policy, um, you're an agent for one of the title companies um, and they'll, they'll give lots of people agencies. 
um, then um, you're qualified. Uh, now you may have to have a license from the state of Tennessee, but you don't have to be a lawyer. Um, you know, I think I think when 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 Mark and I started in this, it was, you know, yeah, we wanted to utilize technology, and yeah, we wanted to deploy it in a way that would make things more efficient. And so you could call that kind of you know new school. Uh, but I would say that we're also very much old school in the way we operate on a day-to-day -day basis. I don't know. I have a a pile of paper on my desk uh, behind me here. Um, which is me looking at title searches. And I look at a lot of title searches every day. It's what I do. Um, and, and it's not because I really enjoy looking at title searches. The novelty is worn off. Um, but it's because, you know, when, when, when you've looked as, at as many as we have, you're going to see things that other people aren't. And for example, I have a client right now who, who bought something in Nashville and they're refinancing it. And it's an investment. Lo and behold, there's a a covenant uh, in the title work that says you can't rent your property out. It's it's prohibited, and and we're seeing a lot of that now um, because you know in most communities they don't want an Airbnb. You know they they don't want overnight um, transient tenants um, in their communities. Um, so you're seeing a, a lot of homeowners associations um, enact changes to their covenants and bylaws. Um, to prohibit short-term leasing or to prohibit it altogether. We really do try to take a, an, uh, I guess, uh, a, a, a blend, I guess, if you will, the use of the technology, uh, but still staying true to um, what we think, you know, the client really, really wants uh, and deserves and not make it um, a completely commoditized uh, operation where it's just a, a conveyor belt of, of Everybody here has a role to play, and um, as much as uh, um, there's parts of it that I enjoy more than others, um, I think I think all of all of the various uh, aspects and roles that we play in the transaction are, are vital and necessary. Well, I really like what both of you had to say about uh, the personal touch, and I think that's probably good advice, no matter what you're doing, no matter what kind of business you're conducting, at some point, you you really need to get on the phone and 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 talk to the person that you're dealing with, um, because that's what these scammers rely on. Um, most of the scammers, I think, rely on everybody's busy, everybody's trying to get things done, and they're hoping that you don't pay attention to the fact that their email address is uh, 87 characters long. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, and just hit send or hit OK and 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 do that at at some point you've really got to pick up the phone and and confirm things particularly when you're asking that when you're being asked to um, transfer money yeah I mean it, it, it's the thing that keeps us up at night and it's the thing that that we harp on we've got some really experienced good people that have been with us uh, for I mean in some cases many more than 10 years um, we had it happen this week I, I, we, we keep telling stories but uh, we had a, we had a we I got a call yesterday. We have an office in, in West Memphis, Arkansas, in Crittenden County, and the, the the lead person in our office over there called me and said we we had this closing. I was familiar with the closing, um, and we weren't going to be able to close the transaction because there was a tax sale, a recent tax sale in the chain of title, and the title company just says no. They want you to go get an order quieting title. 
that involves hiring, you know, somebody to go pursue something in chancery court. So it wasn't going to close. I mean, when, when the contract uh, closing date was, uh, nevertheless, um, a $50,000 wire showed up. The person who sent the wire was, was emailing, was calling. I didn't mean to send $50,000, send it back, send it back. And, you know, we've seen this scenario play out a number of times. And, and of course, our, our, our team over there said, you know, their, their tentacles were raised and, and they called me and I said, no, absolutely not. Don't send the money back. We got the bank on the phone. The bank said, if that's the case, the, the, whoever sent the wire needs to call their bank and have it returned, initiate that process through their bank. Um, but clearly, from my perspective, I didn't, I didn't really go further with it. it. The money never hit the account. It was, right. it was just, it was a bogus wire, or maybe it was an ACH. Um, so it was never really available. And, and if we had done what the, what the person was asking, uh, we'd have put $50,000 in their pocket. So we've got experienced people, we've got good controls in place um, to handle those situations. And, you know, when something like that happens, you know, we, we make everybody aware, hey, this happened, everybody needs to be aware of it so that they can learn from it the next time. Well, and you know, the, that's a great story. And one of the parts of that story that I think is, is, is interesting is, you know, you're looking through the title and you find a tax sale. And I think, you know, the, the, the lay person who's, who's going through a sale, uh, something like that, um, you know, they really don't realize the importance of making sure that title is really, really tight. And uh, when you automate it too much, those are the kinds of things that you theoretically can miss, particularly if you're not an experienced lawyer, right? Absolutely. I mean, it goes to this, what I call the kind of the commoditization of, of our industry. Um, you know, if uh, title um, acquired by tax sale is, is, is very perilous and the title companies put on um, seminars every year about it. They don't like to insure that risk. They'll, they'll tell you that there's constitutional protections in place. If you didn't get notice of that sale, actual notice, not notice by publication, then that has due process implications. And um, we've seen those lawsuits get filed from time to time uh, in, in federal court. And there's really no um, um, scenario for the title company that's positive there. It, it's, it's a complete failure of title um, if, the, if the taxpayer never got notice. And, but everybody wants a deal. So you're seeing um, um, efforts to kind of, you know, as, as, the, as the tax sale process has moved more and more online and, and you can see the deal and you, oh, that's a great street or I know that area or, you know, this could be a great investment. Um, it, it could be, um, it, but it, it's not one that in most instances, a title company is gonna insure that risk. You're gonna have to go further and get a quiet title or do some other things, maybe get a deed from the taxpayer. Um, but no, nobody likes to hear that. And, and uh, you know, because at that point, you know, we're, we may be standing in the way of somebody, you know, doing, you know, making an investment, making a decision that they really think is in their interest. And we don't like to do that either. Um, so we're, we're going to try if we can to help them. Um, but, you know, our, our, our hands are somewhat tied in that instance. Now, Mark, it's not like you're buying a, 
some, your grand, somebody's grandmother's piano, um, you know, and I, I think it, it frustrates uh, buyers some, particularly buyers sometimes when these these things happen. But um, if they don't get it resolved before the closing, a lot of times they're just out of luck, right? Yeah, actually, I've got a situation now, and it's usually before the. Uh, it's a commercial situation, and for most people, they don't they don't distinguish between title search and title policy. And even within that, there's it's it, there's quite a bit of difference there. So, for example, on this this one transaction, I'm thinking of that I'm uh, getting ready to close, commercial transaction. They didn't have an agent, but they they thought they were getting a good deal on this property, and they may be. And uh, we didn't get involved until about a week before closing. And according to the terms of the contract, the time for raising any objections to the title had already passed. And um, he said, well, I've got a title search and a title commitment. And they assume that that means everything's good. So I looked at the title commitment and yeah, they did a title search, but on the title commitment, which is the commitment for uh, the title policy, they had noted a lot of problems with the title that they weren't willing to insure. He didn't know any better. He just thought, hey, I got a title policy. And I said, yeah, well, you've got a title policy, but it doesn't protect you against all these risks that they were able to identify in the title search, which were defects in the title, but his time for you know, raising that objection to the seller had already passed. So uh, while now he can't have the seller fix them, he's gonna have to pay you know, us to fix them before closing so that he's got a good title to the property. Yeah. And I've seen that a lot with tax sales too. Uh, people are wanting to buy a tax sale and they said, oh, I've got a title search on it. Well, that's just you know telling you about the problems that are there, doesn't really fix the problems that are there. And then you know with regards to title work or, or to deeds and, and um, things we find in the title search, there's so many things that are just unfixable, but that's what title insurance for. Some of those risks that are out there are so small that the title insurance company is willing to, to you know, protect you against those because the risks are so small. It could be something like an old mortgage from Boatman's Bank. You know, Boatman's Bank hadn't been around forever, so right. they're, willing to, they're willing to take the risk that that's been paid off, but a release was never filed of record. So title insurance really provides the lubricant to allow a lot of deals to get done. Well, very good. Well, I'm looking at my my clock. I think we're about out of time, um, but I want to thank you guys for uh, for hopping on the call and sure. and sharing your uh, your insights. Uh, last question before before we go. Um, big picture, next ten years. Where do you where do you see uh, your industry, your profession um, being? I'll take a, a little stab at it, Greg. Um, I think uh, banks are gonna try to uh, continue to move into the space and accelerate the speed of which these transactions occur. And right now, as Greg said, you know, we spend a lot of time looking uh, at title uh, searches, trying to identify problems and fix them. Uh, eventually title insurance will move to kind of a different insurance model where they won't scrutinize the, uh, the title history so much. They'll just have an actuary put a late put a number on it and say, you know, we know that X number of titles are bad and we're willing to insure them for this premium and we're not going to go worry about fixing all those problems. I'll answer the question this way, Alan. I I, I hope that um, we see a lot of instances of 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 fraud 
Um, and, that, and it takes a lot of forms, but uh, you, know, you can walk down right now. I could go with you to the Shelby County Register's office and I could say, I don't own this property. Uh, Alan does here standing next to me and I'm gonna deed it to myself. And as long as it meets their recording requirements, then the Shelby County Register, by law, it's not, it's not by choice, it's by law, we'll, we'll record that deed. And um, we see that, um, it comes up um, regularly. If you go down there and you ask them for a form, they'll give you one. You see a lot of handwritten deeds nowadays, which always raise a lot of eyebrows in our office. Um, I hope that there will be some changes in the law um, that make that more difficult. I hope that um, with respect to uh, intestate succession, where, um, where somebody dies without a will, um, that, they'll, that, that Arkansas has some laws that are a, <clears throat> a little bit more progressive in this regard. Um, but right now, if I own a piece of property and I die without a will, it just descends to my heirs. So that could be my spouse, my kids. And as you can imagine, many times, um, some of those heirs may have departed um, and, uh, or, or can't be found. Um, we need a better way for property to descend in that scenario um, because it is a, it is an, uh, it's, 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 an, it's a home, it's got, it's got value. And so I, I'd like to see some changes made in that regard um, um, so that that wealth can, can be passed on um, to, to another generation and doesn't just end up you know, as cheating to the state or, um, you know, being sold at a tax sale. That's a good point. That's a good point. I see that a lot um, in my practice, a lot of litigation over, you know, heirs in an intestate situation. There's so many ways uh, to button that up that uh, if you own a home and you don't have a will or it's not in a trust or in some vehicle that allows it to uh, pass easily and quickly, you owe it to your, your heirs to, to do that. And it's not really that expensive if you do it proactively and it, it may save a family ending fight on the back, on the back end. Um, well, I, again, I, you guys, I appreciate it. Uh, you being with us so much. Uh, I'll tell you y'all, uh, one of the, the best in the business and, uh, it's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you for time, Alan. All right, everybody. Thank you for watching um, this episode of Ask Allen. Uh, if you enjoyed it, please share it on social media. Email it to your friends. Uh, get the word out about uh, uh, these uh, real estate issues that uh, that we've talked about. Uh, as, as Greg and Mark said, this is your most important investment, the biggest investment you're personally ever going to make, um, unless you're Elon Musk and you go around buying uh, publicly held uh, social media platforms. Uh, but I bet maybe his house is worth more than $43 million. I, you know, he, that may be true too. Um, I'm going to call you when he asks me to close his house on Mars. Yeah, that, that's right. That's right. But I digress. So thank you all very much. I'm going to go get some justice and Mark and Greg are going to go uh, help uh, people achieve the American dream with home ownership.
All right, hello everybody, and welcome to this episode of Ask Alan the Podcast. I'm Alan Crone, the CEO of the Crone Law Firm, and we've got a very interesting show today. I'm very excited about it. We've got Greg Siskin and Mark Diaz, who are uh, the principals of a real estate title company and closing firm called Close Track. That's doing uh, real well. And uh, gentlemen, thank you for uh, for jumping on the call. Yeah, thanks for uh, having us, Alan. We could jump right in there with the name, Close Track. So uh, I've always kind of been a fan of technology, maybe not a great user, but I've always been amazed at what it can do. So I had originally got in the closing business back in 1993, and I, I got out in the late 90s um, when everybody was talking about the, the information superhighway. Mm-hmm. And uh, as that was coming along, I thought it was going to be big, so I I thought I needed to kind of further my education, learn about the internet a little more. So I got out of the closing business and went back to school for a couple of years and got a degree in uh, e-commerce and decided I would try to take the transaction online and create this transaction management portal. And that's where the name Close Track came from. It was a very rudimentary website at the time, but um, sounded good on paper. Nobody really, um, I was solving a, a need or a problem that really didn't exist. People weren't ready to migrate online yet. So I eventually pivoted from, I kept the name and pivoted back into the traditional closing space of, you know, printing documents and, and signing with ink. Greg, how about you? How did you get to uh, uh, close track in this, this type of uh, transaction work? Yeah, so I started out at a traditional law firm when I finished law school in 1999. And um, our mutual friend, uh, Bill Walk, was a partner there. And um, that's how I met Mark. Um, you know, it was a, we were back in our younger days. Um, we had a lot of fun playing golf together. And I had decided that that environment just wasn't uh, a good fit for me. Um, and we were doing a lot of litigation, but I had a little bit of exposure to the transactional side. And as I got to know Mark and, and heard more about what he was doing, um, it, it was just seemed like an exciting opportunity. When, when I left, I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do next. And Mark and I have laughed about this over the years from time to time. I just started kind of hanging out at the office and, uh, you know, he had a place to work and, um, um, I started doing some closings and, and, and learning the ropes. And, uh, that's been nearly, uh, 20 years now, uh, that we've been, uh, together. Well, uh, Mark, I want to pick up on something you said that I think is uh, is fascinating. Uh, you know, you you were an early adopter of some of this technology, but expand a little bit on on how resistance in the the industry or uh, you know your customers uh, impacted the the application of technology to to uh, closing real estate. Well, initially, I think some people who were going to be impacted by the closing, migrating it online, were fearful that it could eliminate their position or you know the value they might bring to the transaction. And we've recently seen, so, so that never really happened, partly because the technology wasn't ready, partly because people weren't ready to move on. So as we know with recently with COVID, people kind of got forced in to a lot of online situations. So we dealt that and, and that accelerated both the development of the technology as well as some of the laws that were needed to implement it or to make it legal. And one of those was online notaries. And what I've kind of 
come to find out, or Greg can chime in on this, people, even though that online avenue is available for the closing, I don't think it provides nearly the experience that an in-person closing does. And once those rules were relaxed and people would come back into the office again, um, and we still had that online option, nobody really wanted that online option hardly. It was rare that we, we needed somebody absent some exigent circumstances, they were out of town or out of the country or whatever. So there are certain aspects of the transaction that we can compress and migrate online. And at the inception of the process, it's very helpful, like getting signatures to a contract. You want to hurry up and bind the agreement. You can email it out. They electro electronically sign it. But when it comes down to the closing, that kind of capstone event for the transaction, people seem like they want to come in and we want them to come in and kind of summarize and explain everything at that point. When you when you do closings online, I'm, I'm assuming you're doing them via Zoom. Well, we've done them a variety of ways. Um, we had some emergency rules passed during COVID where we could do a Zoom closing. So people would, we would FedEx or deliver the documents to them. We'd have a Zoom call. They would sign them where in wet ink where they were. We'd notarize them when they got back. Uh, now we've got different platforms available where we can do a remote online notary where they, they don't have to sign, but they can just click. So we use um, uh, a little bit of both now. Greg, where do you think technology um, in your industry is, is going to take the industry? It's a great question. Um, I wish I knew the answer. The adoption has been slow, uh, slower than I think anybody would have predicted, um, you know, say, say 10, 20 years ago. I think that at that time we were all un under the uh, would have would have said, um, you know, we won't be sitting at a table. There won't be, you know, wedding closings anymore. And yet um, here, here we are. And still the vast majority of transactions are closed, you know, where somebody is signing in front of in the traditional way. Um, and, um, you know, as we move forward, as you know, our, our, our children grow up and, and we become older, um, I, I, I would like to tell you, I think that, that it'll become massively adopted. But I'm really not sure, Alan. I think, uh, you know, as I was, as we were talking offline, I mentioned uh, there was an individual, we had a transaction that closed this week where, you know, unbeknownst to anybody, he just was out of the country and said, well, I didn't, I didn't realize, I, I thought I could do it all online. Um, and, and, and we, we were able to get it done through, through, a, through a Ron transaction, uh, but they're cumbersome. And, um, and I think they make people feel um, some uh, a little bit uncomfortable. Um, this, this gentleman was probably in his 60s. And so generationally, you would think this is a person who wants to come into the office, wants to see it, touch it, feel it, sign it. Um, but he didn't. And um, so, I, I, you know, in some ways, I think, well, it's a generational thing. Younger people are more accustomed to the technology. They want it. They don't they expect to use their phone uh, to sign everything. Uh, but that's not always the case. And as I've said for years, from for, from for almost every for everybody, um, you know, a home is the single largest purchase that you'll ever make uh, in your lifetime. And, um, you know, coming in and sitting around a table. Um, and signing documents and having somebody like myself or Mark explain things, um, you know, that may never go away. Do you think there's a correlation between um, the sophistication level? In other words, if I'm a couple and I'm buying my first house in my 20s, 
I'm more inclined to want to sit with the lawyer and understand everything as opposed to it's my third house and I'm in my 40s or 50s. I just want to get the deal done. I'm, I'm not as worried about knowing what I'm signing because I've been through the process. Uh, is there a correlation there, you think? I think there is, but there's always the exception. Uh, the sure. gentleman I mentioned, um, and the, on the other extreme, you know, I, I, now I'm recalling last week, I also had a couple, this, this, uh, this, this, the, the, the wife, this, this had been her home since she was four years old. And she was, I would say, well into her seventies. Oh. And, um, she, uh, um, there was no using even email. I mean, call, I mean, for, you know, we were taking things to them and so they could see them in advance and dropping them off at their house. And uh, so there was, there was no technology deployed in the transaction, you know, very, very, very little. Um, so it really does run the gamut. But yeah, generationally, I think younger people are more inclined to want to sign electronically and do everything over their phones and older folks, myself included, would be more inclined to come in and, and sign at a table. Yeah, it um, like you say, there's there's something about uh, knowing that there's a paper file somewhere uh, that I think gives some some comfort to some people. Uh, but it's you know it's interesting because uh, in on my side of the law, I do a lot of litigation. I really thought that the Zoom hearing uh, would be more would be prevalent. Uh, and preferable, but those are starting to kind of go away. You know, uh, I think there's something about coming together in, in a courtroom or a closing room. I don't want to say it's more formal, but it just seems more real if you're if you're there in person. Well, I, I think this is a harbinger of a lingering effect of the financial crisis. Is that there's still in 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 many people's view a distrust. What am I doing here? What am I signing? And um, I can say um, when I first started doing this, um, it was not uncommon at all for somebody to sit down at the table and go, that's not the monthly payment. That's not the interest rate. And since, uh, since we had some new laws take effect, I would say somewhere 2012, 2014, we call them the TRID rules. But the entire process now is engineered uh, for disclosure. You're gonna get the settlement statement. We call it the closing disclosure three days in advance of the closing. You're gonna to get to see it. You're gonna know what your interest rate and monthly payment are. The, the same thing with at the time you apply for the loan, there's rules in place that say disclosures have to be made so you know what fees you're paying. Um, so really the, the entire process was re-engineered and um, almost every loan that's originated today in the residential um, origination space is the bank, the originator, wants to be eligible for sale to, to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, our, our government-sponsored entities. So everybody is signing the same you know, form of promissory note, form of deed of trust. Um, it's all uniform. Um, so they're not you know, slipping one in on you and, and that you're only gonna come to find the surprise when you, know, when you make your first monthly payment or somewhere down the road. So. Um, to that to, to that extent, because I think that it's really more engineered for disclosure. I think it, it does lend itself more um, to a remote online notary and an electronic signing. But still, you know, people are leery, and it'll, it'll take time for that leeriness to to go away. Mark, what uh, 
what advice would you give, uh, you know, homeowners that are engaging in um, a transaction like this, uh, whether they're first-time home buyers or ho first-time home sellers, or they've done it a, a bunch, in this new environment, what tips would you give them on how best to interact with a company like yours? Well, one thing, you know, we, we've started to do here lately is to, it, it's, it seems like everything's kind of coming full circle, whether it's, uh, you know, everybody going to vinyl for their records. We're trying to get back to more face-to-face, in-person, talking on the phone instead of, you know, just emailing, texting, those kinds of things. Because one of the uh, kind of the dark side of uh, digitizing the transaction or moving things online is it's opened up the transaction to a lot of fraud all over the world. You know, we're constantly under attack. Uh, email, uh, real estate agents, are, uh, their email accounts are constantly under attack by hackers trying to figure out when a transaction is happening. And what the hackers will try to do is we'll, we'll try to figure out when a transaction is and insert some bogus wiring instructions into the transaction. So cyber fraud is a huge issue right now. Um, we, we like to get an in-person introduction or not an in-person introduction, but a kind of a personal connection to the client early on in the process. So that if they get an email asking for money, they need to call us and verify it. So it's kind of buyer beware, seller beware right now in the transaction, especially for first time home buyers. You know, they don't know, you know, kind of the sequence of events. Sometimes they wouldn't know that it might be odd, you know, two weeks before closing, to get an email asking them to wire all their money immediately. And, um, you know, these, these fraudsters are pretty savvy about that because there's so much money at stake. I think they're really deploying a lot of resources. And even with the, the RON, the remote online notary, I've already heard of um, fraudulent transactions there already, mm. uh, which is even more uh, just bold because in a RON transaction, you've got two-way audio uh, visual. So you're on a, you know, just like we're doing now, you're almost like on a Zoom call with the fraudster and they're signing and they've got bogus credentials. In this case, I heard they had a bogus passport that was verified through some kind of agency, uh, third-party agency, and uh, they were able to, you know, get away with that fraud. Well, Greg, uh, how about you? What uh, advice would you give folks that would be interacting with you, with uh, your company? I could probably go on for, for longer than the podcast lasts on this question, Alan. Um, <clears throat> banks have something called Know Your Customer, KYC. Um, no, I didn't say that right. No, the Know Your Customer rules. But the um, know who you're dealing with um, when you're dealing with somebody um, at, a, at a real estate closing firm. Um, you, you use firms in Tennessee. Um, you don't have to be a lawyer to do a real estate closing. So, I mean, there, there's no, as long as you can um, write a title insurance policy, um, you're an agent for one of the title companies um, and they'll, they'll give lots of people agencies, um, then um, you're qualified. Uh, now you may have to have a license from the state of Tennessee, but you don't have to be a lawyer. Um, you know, I think, I think when, when, when Mark and I started in this, it was, you know, yeah, we wanted to utilize technology. And yeah, we wanted to deploy it in a way that would make things more efficient. And so you could call that kind of, you know, new school. Uh, but I would say that we're also very much old school in the way we operate on a day-to-day -day basis. I don't know. I have a 
a pile of paper on my desk uh, behind me here, um, which is me looking at title searches. And I look at a lot of title searches every day. It's what I do. Um, and, and it's not because I really enjoy looking at title searches. The novelty is worn off, um, but it's because, you know, when, when, when you've looked as, at as many as we have, you're going to see things that other people aren't. And for example, I have a client right now who, who bought something in Nashville and they're refinancing it and it's an investment. Lo and behold, there's a, a covenant uh, in the title work that says you can't rent your property out. It's, it's prohibited. And, and we're seeing a lot of that now um, because, you know, in most communities, they don't want an Airbnb, you know, they, they don't want overnight um, transient tenants um, in their communities. Um, so you're seeing a, a lot of homeowners associations um, enact changes to their covenants and bylaws um, to prohibit short-term leasing or to prohibit it altogether. We really do try to take a, an, uh, I guess, uh, a, a, a blend, I guess, if you will, the use of the technology, uh, but still staying true to um, what we think, you know, the client really, really wants uh, and deserves and not make it um, a completely commoditized uh, operation where it's just a, a conveyor belt of, of everybody here has a role to play. And um, as much as uh, um, there's parts of it that I enjoy more than others, um, I think I think all of all of the various uh, aspects and roles that we play in the transaction are, are vital and necessary. Well, I really like what both of you had to say about uh, the personal touch, and I think that's probably good advice. No matter what you're doing, no matter what kind of business you're conducting, at some point you you really need to get on the phone and, and, and talk to the person that you're dealing with um, because that's what these scammers rely on. Um, most of the scammers I think rely on, everybody's busy, everybody's trying to get things done and they're hoping that you don't pay attention to the fact that their email address is uh, 87 characters long um, yeah. and, uh, you know, and just hit send or hit okay and, and, and do that at, at some point, you've really got to pick up the phone and and confirm things, particularly when you're asking when you're being asked to um, transfer money. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's the thing that keeps us up at night, and it's the thing that that we harp on. We've got some really experienced, good people that have been with us uh, for, I mean, in some cases, many more than ten years. Um, we had it happen this week. I, I, we we keep telling stories, but. Uh, we had a, we had a, we, I got a call yesterday. We have an office in, in West Memphis, Arkansas, in Crittenden County, and the, the the lead person in our office over there called me and said we we had this closing. I was familiar with the closing, um, and we weren't going to be able to close the transaction because there was a tax sale, a recent tax sale in the chain of title, and the title company just says no. They want you to go get an order quieting title. That involves hiring, you know, somebody to go pursue something in Chancery Court. So it wasn't going to close. I mean, when when the contract uh, closing date was, uh, nevertheless, um, a fifty thousand dollar wire showed up. The person who sent the wire was was emailing, was calling. I didn't mean to send fifty thousand dollars. Send it back. Send it back. And you know, we've seen this scenario play out a number of times. And, and of course, our 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 team over there said. You know, their, their tentacles were raised and 
and they called me and I said, no, absolutely not. Don't send the money back. We got the bank on the phone. The bank said, if that's the case, the, the, whoever sent the wire needs to call their bank and have it returned, initiate that process through their bank. Um, but clearly from my perspective, I didn't, I didn't really go further with it. The, the money never hit the account. It was, right. it was just, it was a bogus wire or maybe it was an ACH. Um, so it was never really available. And, and if we had done what the, what the person was asking, uh, we'd have put $50,000 in their pocket. So we've got experienced people, we've got good controls in place um, to handle those situations. And, you know, when something like that happens, you know, we, we make everybody aware, hey, this happened, everybody needs to be aware of it so that they can learn from it the next time. Well, and, you know, the, that's a great story. And one of the parts of that story that I think is, is, is interesting is, you know, you're looking through the title and you find a tax sale. And I think, you know, the, the, the layperson who's, who's going through a sale, uh, something like that, um, you know, they really don't realize the importance of making sure that title is really, really tight. And uh, when you automate it too much, those are the kinds of things that you theoretically can miss, particularly if you're not an experienced lawyer, right? Absolutely. I mean, it goes to this, what I call the kind of the commoditization of, of our industry, um, you know, if, if uh, title um, acquired by tax sale is, is, is very perilous and the title companies put on um, seminars every year about it, they don't like to insure that risk. They'll, they'll tell you that there's constitutional protections in place. If you didn't get notice of that sale, actual notice, not notice by publication, then that has due process implications. And um, we've seen those lawsuits get filed from time to time uh, in, in federal court. And there's really no um, um, scenario for the title company that's positive there. It, it's, it's a complete failure of title um, if, the, if the taxpayer never got notice. And, but everybody wants a deal. So you're seeing um, um, efforts to kind of, you know, as, as, the, as the tax sale process has moved more and more online and, and you can see the deal and you, oh, that's a great street or I know that area or, you know, this could be a great investment. Um, it, it could be, um, it, but it, it's not one that in most instances, a title company is gonna insure that risk. You're gonna have to go further and get a quiet title or do some other things, maybe get a deed from the taxpayer, um, but, no, nobody likes to hear that. And, and uh, you know, because at that point, you know, we're, we may be standing in the way of somebody, you know, doing, you know, making an investment, making a decision that they really think is in their interest. And we don't like to do that either. Um, so we're, we're going to try if we can to help them. Um, but, you know, our, our, our hands are somewhat tied in that instance. Now, Mark, it's not like you're buying a, uh, some, your gran somebody's grandmother's piano. Um, you know, and I, I think it frustrates uh, buyers sometimes, particularly buyers sometimes when these these things happen. But um, if they don't get it resolved before the closing, a lot of times they're just out of luck, right? Yeah, actually, I've got a situation now, and it's usually before the uh, it's a commercial situation. And for most people, they don't they don't distinguish between title search and title policy. 
And even within that, there's it's it, there's quite a bit of difference there. So, for example, on this this one transaction, I'm thinking of that I'm uh, getting ready to close, commercial transaction. They didn't have an agent, but they they thought they were getting a good deal on this property, and they may be. And uh, we didn't get involved until about a week before closing. And according to the terms of the contract, the time for raising any objections to the title had already passed. And um, he said, well, I've got a title search and a title commitment. And they assume that that means everything's good. So I looked at the title commitment and yeah, they did a title search, but on the title commitment, which is the commitment for uh, the title policy, they had noted a lot of problems with the title that they weren't willing to insure. He didn't know any better. He just thought, hey, I got a title policy. And I said, yeah, well, you've got a title policy, but it doesn't protect you against all these risks that they were able to identify in the title search, which were defects in the title, but his time for you know, raising that objection to the seller had already passed. So uh, while now he can't have the seller fix them, he's gonna have to pay you know, us to fix them before closing so that he's got a good title to the property. Yeah. And I've seen that a lot with tax sales too. Uh, people are wanting to buy a tax sale and they said, oh, the, I've got a title search on it. Well, that's just, you know, telling you about the problems that are there. It doesn't really fix the problems that are there. And then, you know, with regards to title work or, or to deeds and, and um, things we find in the title search, there's so many things that are just unfixable, but that's what title insurance for. Some of those risks that are out there are so small that the title insurance company is willing to, to you know, protect you against those because the risks are so small. It could be something like an old mortgage from Boatman's Bank. You know, Boatman's Bank hadn't been around forever, so right. they're, willing to, they're willing to take the risk that that's been paid off, but a release was never filed of record. So title insurance really provides the lubricant to allow a lot of deals to get done. Well, very good. Well, I'm looking at my my clock. I think we're about out of time, um, but I want to thank you guys for uh, for hopping on the call and sure. and sharing your uh, your insights. Uh, last question before before we go. Um, big picture, next ten years. Where do you where do you see uh, your industry, your profession um, being? I'll take a, a little stab at it, Greg. Um, I think uh, banks are going to try to uh, continue to move into the space and accelerate the speed of which these transactions occur. And right now, as Greg said, you know, we spend a lot of time looking uh, at title uh, searches, trying to identify problems and fix them. Uh, eventually, title insurance will move to kind of a different insurance model where they won't scrutinize the, uh, the title history so much. They'll just have an actuary put a late, put a number on it and say, you know, we know that X number of titles are bad and we're willing to insure them for this premium and we're not going to go worry about fixing all those problems. I'll answer the question this way, Alan. I, I, I hope that um, we see a lot of instances of, of, of fraud um, and, and it takes a lot of forms, but uh, you, know, you can walk down right now. I could go with you to the Shelby County Register's office. And I could say, I don't own this property. Uh, Alan does here standing next to me and I'm going to deed it to myself. And as long as it meets their recording requirements, then the Shelby County Register, by law, it's not, it's not by choice, it's by law, we'll, we'll record that deed. And um, we see that um, it comes up um, 
regularly. If you go down there and you ask them for a form, they'll give you one. You see a lot of handwritten deeds nowadays, which always raise a lot of eyebrows in our office. Um, I hope that there will be some changes in the law um, that make that more difficult. I hope that um, with respect to uh, intestate succession, where, um, where somebody dies without a will, um, that, they'll, that, that Arkansas has some laws that are a, <clears throat> a little bit more progressive in this regard. Um, but right now, if I own a piece of property and I die without a will, it just descends to my heirs. So that could be my spouse, my kids. And as you can imagine, many times, um, some of those heirs may have departed um, and, uh, or, or can't be found. Um, we need a better way for property to descend in that scenario um, because it is a, it is an, uh, it's, 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 an, it's a home, it's got, it's got value. And so I, I'd like to see some changes made in that regard. Um, um, so that that wealth can, can be passed on um, to, to another generation and doesn't just end up, you know, as cheating to the state or, um, you know, being sold at a tax sale. It's a good point. It's a good point. I see that a lot um, in my practice, a lot of litigation over, you know, heirs in an intestate situation. There's so many ways uh, to button that up that uh, if you own a home, and you don't have a will or it's not in a trust or in some vehicle that allows it to uh, pass easily and quickly, you owe it to your, your heirs to, to do that. And it's not really that expensive if you do it proactively and it, it may save a family ending fight on the back, on the back end. Um, well, I, again, I, I, you guys, I appreciate it. Uh, you being with us so much. Uh, I'll tell you, y'all, uh, one of the, the best in the business, and uh, it's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you for your time, Alan. All right, everybody. Thank you for watching um, this episode of Ask Alan. Uh, if you enjoyed it, please share it on social media. Email it to your friends. Uh, get the word out about uh, uh, these uh, real estate issues that, uh, that we talked about. Uh, as, as Greg and Mark said, this is your most important investment, the biggest investment you're personally ever going to make, um, unless you're Elon Musk and you go around buying uh, publicly held uh, social media platforms. Uh, but I bet maybe his house is worth more than $43 million. I, you know, he, that may be true, too. Um, I'm going to call you when he asks me to close his house on Mars. Yeah, that, that's right. That's right. But I digress. So thank you all very much. I'm going to go get some justice and Mark and Greg are going to go uh, help uh, people achieve the American dream with home ownership. <laughs>